This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. Uh, we're starting a new uh, series this morning, and so I want to give a, a few thoughts in regards to that and uh, give you some insight as to what we're doing uh, this morning, and then we'll, we'll stand and we'll uh, pray and read the word uh, together. And so th- this series is going to be a little different uh, from most of the series that we've had in the past, in that ordinarily at New City, we uh, work our way uh, through an entire book of the Bible. Sometimes we don't study every passage, but we kind of work through the entire book. Uh, this series is going to be different uh, in the fact that I'm going to kind of build a series out of one verse. So ordinarily we walk through a book, but this time we're going we're to work out of a verse into other passages. And so that's going to be a little bizarre and a little different, uh, probably a lot bizarre and a lot different compared to what we're used to, for example, having just finished uh, going through Galatians uh, in detail. Uh, also, uh, in this series, ordinarily I would name the series in the introduction of the first sermon and then jump into the sermon, uh, whereas today I'm going to name the series uh, after the first sermon. So in the conclusion, I'm going to introduce you to uh, the series itself and sort of what we're naming it and labeling it uh, and where we want to go. Uh, with it. And so again, the, the text this morning is going to be one verse at 2 Corinthians uh, 3.18. And I'm tempted uh, to say that this is my life verse. Uh, I'm tempted to say that this is my favorite verse. Uh, I'm not going to say that because it's probably not true. Uh, I don't have any idea what my life verse uh, is yet because I'm not done living. And I'm not really sure what my favorite verse is. I don't think I'm smart enough uh, to know that. And I don't think God wants me yet uh, to know that. But I I can say this about 2 Corinthians 3.18. I have given more thought and reflection to this verse than any other verse in the Bible. Uh, I have meditated upon, chewed upon, uh, thought about, and given a lot of reflection to uh, this one verse. Um, I've only been studying the Bible for probably uh, about uh, 15 years, let's say. And, and I would say by far, this is the verse uh, that I've, I've given the most thought to uh, in the scriptures. It's a really big deal in the scriptures. This was one of the Puritans' favorite verses. If you study the Puritans, you know that there's an awful lot written about 2 Corinthians 3.18. Uh, it's a really big deal to me. It's how I think about you as the people of New City. Uh, New City, our architecture, um, our philosophy of ministry is designed with this verse in mind. Uh, the way in which I lead and pastor you is in a lot of ways based on the contents of this verse. This is a huge, huge verse. And so what I want to do today is I want to unpack it. I just want to dive into it and understand it. And then I want to name the series that we're going to try and build from it. And then we'll go home, and Lord willing, we'll come back next week uh, excited to be here and excited uh, to move on. So with all that said, if you would, please stand. Uh, We're going to read God's word together. But before we do, we're going to pray aloud, uh, asking God to illuminate, to shine his light into our hearts and and onto our path, and most importantly, into uh, his word. So let's, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we wish to see Jesus by your Spirit's power Give us eyes to see his glory. Through Christ we pray, amen. 2 Corinthians 3.18. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. This is God's word. 
Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Three short points this morning from 2 Corinthians 3.18. This verse gives us an incredible promise. Uh, This verse contains what I call an embedded precaution. And and this verse also uh, reveals an implied participation. So uh, basically, the promise is this, that God is changing you if you're a believer. And it's an incredible promise. The precaution is basically this, for the rest of your life, you're gonna need change. Uh, and that's, that's warning you to not, to not get ahead of yourself in God's process. And then the, the participation point is gonna be all about how do I avail myself to God's changing of me and how do I even accelerate God's changing of me? And so those will be our three points there, particularly the first two points, they're very quick. It'll, it'll save us some time to think about Uh, the series at the end. So an incredible promise, an embedded precaution, and an implied participation. So first, uh, an incredible promise. Uh, If you would look at the screen, what I've done is I've taken out some of the parenthetical comments of Paul. We're going to come back to them in a moment, but I've taken out some parenthetical comments to, to show you this incredible promise. We all are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. There it is, an incredible promise. In the third point, I'm going to further uh, define what Paul means by glory, uh, this glory that we're being transformed into from one degree to the next. But just know this for now, that to the original audience, uh, this would have been an incredible thing to hear. Uh, Cultural synonyms and linguistic synonyms to the original audience uh, would have been uh, honor, weight, importance, value, And so while we're going to see that Paul means more than this, Paul means at least this, that we all are being transformed from one degree of honor and weight and importance and value and significance to another. Uh, To say it very vaguely, because I want to save uh, some of the content for, for the third point, to say it vaguely, believers are getting better and better and better as humans. We're becoming better humans in the way in which God designed us to live. It's an incredible promise if you'll just stop and consider what is being said here. We all deeply long for improvement. Every one of us, I've never met a person who didn't yearn for personal development. All of us want to be more loving. All of us want to be more self-controlled. All of us want to be more wise. All of us want to be more peaceful and more trusting and more giving uh, and more honest and more secure and more beneficial and helpful to the community in which we live. All of us want to improve. I don't know anybody who would say, I have zero desire to progress as a human. And Paul is saying, here's this incredible promise in 2 Corinthians 3.18, God is improving you. I was, I was telling Damien this week, we are talking about another matter altogether, and I was telling him that my, my second most frequent prayer uh, in life is this, God, change me. My, my number one prayer in life, now that I'm 39 um, and I'm getting older and it looks as though I'm heading downhill fast, um, my, my number one prayer right now is Maranatha, which is sort of that biblical word for, for Jesus come back. 
Jesus, bring your new heavens and your new earth. Jesus, bring paradise. Uh, Jesus, eradicate evil. Uh, Jesus, please come back. This is a biblical prayer. It's a prayer that Paul prayed in the Bible. It's a prayer that John prayed in the Bible. Uh, As life gets more complex and I get dumber, I keep praying that prayer uh, more than ever before. Jesus, just come back, okay? Maranatha, okay? But the number two prayer that I find myself praying uh, is please make me better. I mean, I I look at the past and I see the mess that, that I've made of it. I look at the past and I can see my mistakes. I look at the past and I can feel shame right now thinking about things I've done in the past. I look at the past and I can see pain that I've caused to other people. But also in every moment of my life, not just the past, in every moment of my life, I feel the need to be more loving and more wise and more prayerful than I currently am. And as I look to the future based on how things have gotten more complex over the last couple of years, I get the sense things are going to become more complex in the future. And I see on the horizon these realities coming at me and I think I'm going to need more faith and I'm going to need more wisdom and I'm going to need more strength and I'm going to need more love than I've ever exhibited before. And deep inside of me, there is this prayer saying, God, transform me. I want to be more than I've been. I know that to live well in the future, I will need to be more uh, then than I am now. Transform me. And Paul is saying in 2 Corinthians 3.18 that God is giving us this incredible promise that believers are being transformed by God into a person who is better than yesterday. The English translation indicates that this is a passive verb and it is a passive verb in the Greek. It's being transformed. Think about what that says. Someone outside of us is acting upon us. Someone other than us is transforming us. In this short verse, there's actually three indications that God is doing this work and we are not doing this work for ourselves. First, as I said, this is a passive verb. You are being transformed. Second, there's the very direct statement at the end of the verse for people like myself uh, that need to have it plainly stated to them. For this, this transformation of increasing glory comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. And so Paul is is telling us that the Spirit that lives within us, that is inside of us, that Spirit is transforming us. But then there's this odd phrase at the start of the verse. It says, we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord. It's a a fascinating and complex argument that's happening in chapters three and four, but we just read it on Thursday and Friday if you're a part of the City Bible Reading Initiative. And so by by Paul saying that we all have unveiled faces, uh, he's at least saying this, that if you read the Bible, if you hear the Bible and you understand it, if you read the Bible and you find it beautiful, if you read the word and it makes sense to you and it makes sense of your life, it's because God has removed the veil over your eyes that, quote, the God of this world puts over people's minds to blind them to the truth of the Bible. In chapter four, uh, verses one through six, what we just read Friday for CBR, Paul writes that anyone who is perishing, anyone who is not saved, anyone who is perishing, they are perishing because they don't believe the gospel. But then Paul goes on and he says they don't believe the gospel because they don't see the gospel. And then Paul keeps going and he says the reason they don't see the gospel is because, quote, the God of this world, that's the devil, he has blinded their minds with a veil. And so in our verse with chapter three before it and chapter four after it, by saying that we have unveiled face is to say that God has removed the veil from our eyes so that we can see the beauty and the glory of the gospel. 
And so by saying with unveiled face, by saying you're being transformed, and by saying uh, that this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit, Paul could not be more clear. This is an incredible promise. It's a promise that speaks to the deep longing of our soul. Another other than us is transforming us. Another outside of us and inside of us is acting upon us. This other is God himself. And he's bringing improvement. He's bringing growth. He is bringing transformation. But second, okay, in our efforts to unpack this one verse, it's sort of gonna be our foundation for this series. Uh, second, uh, second Corinthians 3.18 doesn't just give us this incredible promise. It also contains what I call an embedded precaution. Let, let me show you the precaution. We're gonna, I'm gonna highlight an aspect of the verse on the screen. We are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. It's, it's, a, it's a lot more obvious in the original language, but what Paul is speaking to here is this slight and incremental degrees of progress. Paul speaks to slight and very incremental degrees of progress. And Paul is saying God is surely changing us, but that transformation is not this instant switch from dark to light, but instead that transformation is a movement from darkness to light with, with a million shadows of gray. And Paul is saying it's one degree to another. But Paul is promising that we're gonna get better, that we're gonna be more and more glorious, more and more weighty, more and more honorable. But Paul is telling us that this transformation is not easily noticed in the here and now. That this transformation is gonna take a lot longer than we'd prefer. I realize that occasionally, a couple times in my life, I can say, like an avalanche, God changed me. But Paul says the ordinary work of God in the gospel is to change you more like a glacier and less like an avalanche. It's one degree, one tick, one step, one slight advancement, one tick at a time. And so Paul clearly states that he says it's going to be one degree of glory to another, but he also uses a very fascinating word for transformation. It's the Greek word from which we get our English word metamorphosis. Literally, Paul, said, Paul says that you are being morphed one little bit of glory to the next. And so if you know metamorphosis is this process of transformation between uh, two distinct phases. And of course, the most common is the one that we er learn early in elementary school when, when, the, when the caterpillar uh, becomes a butterfly. And, and so what Paul is saying is he's saying right now you're actually morphing, not at a rate that you can see it day to day, but at a rate that you cannot deny across time. And so what Paul is saying is he's saying this metamorphosis is not the two weeks of cocoon time from a caterpillar to become a butterfly, but it's 72 years of cocoon time where the old becomes new, the self-centered becomes selfless, the sinful becomes righteous, the ignoble becomes noble. And here's the precaution. By definition, God is promising to you an ever-increasing glory by definition, God is promising to always be improving you. And so by that very same definition, you always have room for improvement. You always have room for more glory. 
This is why I'm calling it an embedded precaution because at first, and rightfully so, this verse, it grabs our attention, it grabs our hope, it grabs our hearts, and it speaks of this transformation that me and my family need me to have. But also embedded in it, implanted in the verse, is this called a caution to never allow ourselves to think that we'll be perfect in this life. To not be so sure of certain growth that we'll be shocked by our sins in the future. To not be so hard on ourselves about current sin that we in the past were certain we'd be done with by now. I never thought at 39, I'd still get angry with my kids. I never thought at 39, I'd still get anxious standing up here in front of you. I never thought at 39 that I'd still struggle with perfection. I thought that was a problem in college. I never thought at 39, I'd still think money could make me happy. I never thought at 39, you fill in the blank. When you look at your life right now, what is it that you're just like, wow, I'm still struggling with that? And Paul says, in this incredible promise, there is a precaution for you to not think you'll be perfect in this life, for you to not think so sure of yourself that you won't be sinning tomorrow the way you are sinning today, and to not be so bamboozled by the sin in your life today that you thought yesterday you would for sure be done with. And sometimes it's just really helpful and it's really orienting to remember what the Bible says about us. We've been saying this, I think we've said it four or five weeks in a, in a row. Within believers, there is an old self that is anything but glorious. An old self that is constantly and vainly seeking life apart from Jesus and apart from Jesus' gospel. And within the believer, there is a new self, the new self that is utterly glorious. This new self that finds life uh, in uh, Jesus and, and rests in his gospel and is just beautiful. And Paul says that within us, this old self has been crucified. It's not dead, but it is dying. And the new self, by the Spirit, is, is metamorphosing, sing, sing, whatever that word is. And so what Paul says about us is, by definition, until Jesus comes back or until the day we die, one degree of glory to another. And so there's this incredible promise. God is always transforming believers, always growing believers, always humanizing believers. And at the same time, there's this embedded precaution. Believers are always in desperate need of transformation, always in desperate need of growth, always in desperate need of becoming more human. Third, 2 Corinthians 3.18 has this implied participation. Okay, so listen to these questions before we read this on the screen. What's my responsibility in this transformation? How do I participate in this growth from God? Is there anything I can do to enhance it, avail myself to it, even accelerate it? And so Paul's gonna show us in 2 Corinthians 3.18 this participation that we have in God growing us. If you look at the verse at the top of the screen, just look at it. What is the one thing that we're doing in the verse? Our our faces are being unveiled by the Lord. We're not doing that. We're being transformed by the Lord who is the Spirit. We're not doing that. What are we proactively doing when the transformation happens? Look at this third point. We all... Let's go ahead and put it up there. Thank you. We we all, beholding the glory of the Lord, 
are being transformed into the same image. What is our participation while God is doing his work of transformation? We are constantly, increasingly, and repeatedly, quote, beholding the glory of the Lord. What do you do to avail yourself to God's growth of you? What do you do to accelerate God's growth of you? You, quote, behold the glory of the Lord. What does that mean? This feels really important to me. What does this little phrase that we rarely use mean? First, beholding, uh, the Greek word behind the English word beholding had a very particular use in the Greco-Roman world. It's only used this one time in the Bible. The word was used in the Greco-Roman culture for when someone had the chance to look into a mirror. To be clear, what we don't do to experience transformation is look at ourselves. That's not what we do. That's actually the opposite, diametrically opposed to what we do in experiencing transformation. Paul is using this word, it's the only time it's used in the New Testament, he's using this word to describe a certain type of looking. In Paul's world, most people, honestly, most people never even knew mirrors existed in Paul's world. But if you're fortunate enough to have the chance to look into a mirror, you stopped, you studied, you looked with intensity, you looked knowing I'm going to need to remember this later. A beholding is not a word that we use very often in the English language. I think we might be better served by a word like this. Inspecting, examining, studying, staring. So what are we doing when he transforms us? How is our participation in his transformation played out? What we're doing is we're examining, we're staring, we're studying, we're intensely inspecting, quote, the glory of the Lord. What is the glory of the Lord? If you did CBR on Friday, if you were paying attention, you notice that in, in chapter four, verse four, and in chapter four, verse six, Paul says that the glory of the Lord is both the life of Jesus and the gospel of Jesus. Now, I realize that in the Bible, the glory of the Lord means more than this. It includes this. But Paul's saying in this moment, when I say the glory of the Lord, what I'm saying is the life of Jesus and the gospel of Jesus. And so first, when it comes to the incarnation and the life of Jesus, in 3.18, our verse, Paul says that we're being transformed into the same image. And then in 4.4, Paul says that Jesus is the image, the physical manifestation of the glory of God. And so right there, Paul, by saying glory to glory, image to image, Jesus is the image, he is saying in the incarnation of Jesus, that's where you see the glory of God. But also in chapter four, verse four, Paul says that unbelievers can't see, quote, the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. And so the glory of Christ is the glory of the Lord, which is the gospel. In case you missed that, I'll just say it plainly. Paul says that with the intensity of looking into a mirror in a world that didn't have mirrors, with that kind of intensity, when we behold the life of Jesus captured in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and when we behold the gospel itself, while we do that, God transforms us from the inside out. He takes the image of the gospel and the paradigm of the gospel and he makes it true of us. Once you understand the whole passage and its context in chapter three and chapter four, you can say this, and we all beholding Jesus are being transformed from one degree of Jesus to another degree of Jesus. 
And we all beholding the gospel are being transformed from one degree of the gospel to another degree of the gospel. What is our participation in God's transformation of us? What will avail us to his power? What will uh, even accelerate his power? How do we plunge ourselves into the river of God's transforming current? Do we primarily look intently at the world and wonder for the the change techniques of the world? What do I do now to change myself? Do I go to the self-help row in Barnes and Noble and try and figure out how to do this? Do I primarily make promises and and make commitments and tell my accountability partners that we're gonna do this and we're gonna work really hard and this is gonna happen? Do we primarily look at the commands of God in the Hebrew and the Greek and, and parse them out and think them through and think of all the scenarios in the future in our life and do we kind of visualize ourselves uh, doing better in the future because we understand the commands? Is that primarily what we do? Paul says those all make sense from a mere mortal's perspective. But once you understand who's changing you, what makes more sense is to fix your eyes upon, examine, study, focus on, stare at, the life of Jesus and the gospel of Jesus. And know that as we do that, some of it makes sense to us, some of it is mysterious to us. As we do that, God transforms us. One degree at a time as he sees fit in the areas of his life, that he, in the areas of our life that he wants to work on. Paul is saying that as we examine Jesus's life, we will from the inside out by the spirit be transformed in the same likeness, the same image. Paul is saying that as we inspect the gospel, the gospel paradigm, we will become like the gospel. If you were to write out what honor and what weight and what significance and what change you would like to see happen in your life, I can promise you that most of it can clearly be understood by looking at the life of Jesus and looking at the paradigm of the gospel. Let me give you some examples. If you want to be more patient, less irritable. The way that God gives us patience is by showing us the patience Jesus had in his life. Think of him with his slumbering disciples. Incredible patience in the Garden of Gethsemane. And so the Spirit shows us that picture of that life, and then the Spirit shows us the patience of God that God has exhibited to us and exhibits to us in the gospel. And as we receive patience from God by beholding that patience, we from the inside out become patient. Let's say we want to become less bitter, more forgiving. The way the Spirit makes us more forgiving is he shows us the forgiveness Jesus exhibited in his life. Think about Peter and and his betrayals of Jesus, his, uh, his denials of Jesus, excuse me. And then the Spirit shows us the forgiveness God gives us in the gospel. That's the paradigm of the gospel. Wherein Jesus died for our sins in our place, uh, paying the debt that we owed God. And we become more forgiving from the inside out when we see God's forgiveness for our lack of forgiveness through the death of the one who in his life always forgave and was never bitter. Let's say we want to be less dependent on others for their approval. We have to behold Jesus in his life completely dependent on the Father's approval. And therefore he says, I'm not at all dependent on the approval of any man. That's John chapter 5, 41 and following. And then we have to see that God in the gospel gives us his approval because he withdrew his approval from Jesus at the cross. And seeing that, we, and seeing that, seeing that we have God's approval regardless of what we do, that frees us from doing dumb things because we desperately need the approval of someone else. If we want to be more sacrificial, 
We have to see Jesus' sacrificial life and the sacrifice of his life for us. And in seeing that from the inside out, God transforms us into more sacrificial people. If we want to be more compassionate, we have to see the compassion of Jesus' life and the compassion God has for us in the gospel because he removed his compassion from Jesus at Jesus' passion. If we want to be more honest people, if we want to truly accept people as they are and yet be honest with them where we see they're wrong, we have to see that in Jesus' life. And then we have to see that in the gospel, the Father is accepting us, and yet he is brutally honest with us. He accepts us. He does not reject us. He enjoys us because he rejected Jesus after Jesus was never wrong, and after Jesus was always accepting, and after Jesus was always honest in his life. Do you see that we cannot focus on ourselves and the change we want to see? We have to focus on Jesus and the gospel and the change that we see in him will become part of us as God in some ways, obviously, in some ways, mysteriously transforms us. What is our implied participation? As God is making us like Jesus and like the gospel, what do we do? We behold and we inspect and we stare at and we chew on and we examine and we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus and the gospel. Now, what I want to do is I want to share an illustration that I've, I've used in the past. It's not a particularly great illustration. Uh, it's the only one I could think of. And I want to summarize 2 Corinthians 3.18 with the illustration. And I want to also introduce our, our, our sermon series moving forward uh, with the same. Okay, so when Riley, my fifth grade daughter now, was three years old, she was in Miss Rosie's uh, pre-ballet class. And I would say that pre-ballet, the title, um, is on the verge of dishonesty. Uh, (laughs) Ballet certainly would have been a massive stretch of the truth because the room was always filled with this, this massive amount of chaos, There were girls running around. There were girls inspecting themselves in the mirror. There were girls fighting. uh, There were girls laying down for naps. Um, There there were girls wondering where their mom was. Their mom just walked out for 13 seconds. And uh, so it was just mass chaos in in the room. And so the the first time I ever took Riley, I thought this is going to be a galactic waste of money, Uh, which as it turns out, it probably was. Um, Just joking. By, By the end of the semester... The girls had made significant progress. These little three-year-old girls had made significant progress in the various ballet moves that Miss Rosie was committed to teaching them. And so Riley went to ballet on Monday, which was my day off. And and, uh, so I, more often than not, was was Riley's ride. And I was also the parent that got to sit in the room. And and I was the one who got to see the progress happen uh, over time. And what I noticed is how the progress was being made. I noticed across these 12 weeks uh, why the girls were improving. The training was never effective when Miss Rosie would sit them on the floor and explain to them what she wanted them to do with their arms and with their legs and with their bodies. Uh, The training was never effective when the girls would try to copy each other, uh, seeing someone else maybe doing the right thing, and they said, I'll imitate them. The the moves were never learned by the girls looking in the mirror and trying to pull off what Miss Rosie said. The only time the girls improved, the only time they made progress was when Miss Rosie stood in in the front of all of them and performed the various elements to them, and they mirrored them back to her. When the little girls beheld Miss Rosie and when the little girls fought off the temptation to focus on their neighbor, when the little girls fought off the temptation to look at themselves in the mirror, when the little girls just stopped and beheld Miss Rosie, they experienced Miss Rosie 
and they expressed Miss Rosie's desires and teaching. This sermon series is going to be entitled Seeing and Displaying Jesus. The subtitle will be Beholding and Becoming the Gospel. I want us to spend time exploring questions like this. What does it mean to see Jesus? Where can I see Jesus? How can I see Jesus more and more? Because you see, Paul's saying in 2 Corinthians 3.18, if we're not seeing him, we're not being changed. And I want to spend some time exploring the various ways that we'll display Jesus as we fix our eyes upon Jesus. So in my words and in my actions and in my story, how will Jesus reflect off of me into a world in desperate need of him? You see, I think the biggest question in life is this. Why do I exist? Why am I alive? What is my purpose? And I believe that the most biblical answer that you can give to that question is this. I exist to see and display Jesus. I exist to see all that Jesus is for me and to display all that Jesus is to the world. I I, I exist to enjoy Jesus and to join Jesus. I exist to enjoy Jesus' love for me and join Jesus in the love that he wants to give to the world. I exist to believe the gospel and I exist to become the gospel. I exist to believe all that is mine in the good news and to become good news to my neighbor, to my neighborhood, to my city, to my world. You see, it's not just 2 Corinthians 3.18. This whole God to you, God through you reality is all over the Bible. I've limited myself to about one fourth of the verses I thought of. Just listen to these. We saw on Tuesday uh, in CBR, 2 Corinthians 1, we have been comforted by God so we can comfort others. Comfort to you, comfort through you. We saw it Wednesday in CBR, 2 Corinthians 2, we have been forgiven so we can forgive. Forgiveness to you, forgiveness through you. We saw it uh, Friday in CBR, 2 Corinthians 4, we've been given mercy so that we can be ministers of mercy. Mercy to you, mercy through you. Tomorrow in 2 Corinthians 5, you'll read in verse 18, God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself, gave us the ministry of reconciliation to you, through you. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 2 that we're the aroma of Christ. How do you smell like Jesus? He's not cologne. He's not perfume. What is he? He's inside of you. And so when you live and when you sweat and when you perspire, The aroma of Jesus comes out of you, to you and through you. But not just 2 Corinthians, the call to worship. The whole point of 1 John is this. You are loved so you can love. In the sacrament of communion, Jesus says, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He's not talking about the meal. He's talking about a broken body. If you think about it, Romans 12, in view of God's mercies, there it is, there's our sight word again, So in view of God's uh, mercy to you in the life and in the death of Jesus to give you life, he says, all right, now in light of that, offer up your life as a living sacrifice. Psalm 51, I have mercy on me, O God, and my tongue will sing aloud of your salvation. The entire book of Exodus, God redeemed the Israelites from this oppressive servanthood and he gave them freedom in life. And then he said to them, with your freedom in your life, live a life of servanthood to me. The list could go on and on. I want us to see, I want us to explore this idea of what makes the most sense of our lives is that we're here to see 
and to display Jesus. We're here to believe and to become the gospel. I want through this series for you to read the things you've never read in our worship folder and on our website. And I want you to think, oh, that's why they say that. Oh, that was incredibly confusing. It still is somewhat confusing, but now it's starting to make sense. This is the way Ted thinks about us. This is the way Ted thinks about our church. This is the way Ted understands what our role here is at New City, is to help you uniquely see and display Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for the sequence that is found in all of these passages, that it's never us doing something first and you doing something because we did it. It's because you have done uh, everything to us that we can do anything in your name. Uh, Jesus, we praise you that it's not us displaying you and then we get to see you, but it's us seeing you and then we get to display you. Uh, We thank you that we don't have to go out and love others to have your love, but we have your love and that enables us to go out and to love others. Jesus, we thank you that you have acted uh, upon us in the gospel and you act uh, through us by your spirit. Uh, Jesus, I pray that you would help us to see that anything else that we fix our eyes upon, anything else will not satisfy us. And it will in fact make us less human and not more. Uh, Would you, through this series, would you help us to behold your glory and would you help us to extend your glory and your kingdom uh, to the world? May there be others in our city who see you through us and thereby move forward displaying you to others that they might see you. Lord, would we see a massive uh, work of your gospel power in our lives and in our church uh, and in this city and around the world. In your name we pray, Lord Jesus.